Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Darren Bush. Welcome to the podcast, Darren. Thank you, Richard. Tell our listeners where you are calling in from. I'm calling in from Madison, Wisconsin, um, which I call Zion. Um, (laughs) Why do you call it Zion? uh, Because it's where the pure in heart dwell. That's awesome. (laughs) Midwesterners are a unique group of people, and anybody who's lived here um, knows that there's there's such thing as Midwest nice. And um, I think uh, there's people get along really well here. Um, It's 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 kind of a nice uh, nice place to live. I've lived here for 35 years, and uh, you know pretty much all of my adult life. And my wife is a Madison native. And that's how I ended up here. Um, I came here for my wedding reception. I'd never been to Wisconsin before. Wow! And uh, my wife and I, my wife and I went to BYU for one year. Uh, she went for two years. Um, I came home from my mission and had been accepted to BYU. And uh, because of some family situations, my dad had lost his business, and uh, the home life wasn't really uh, good to hang out. So I basically hitched a ride to BYU and. Um, had a, a small loan for my bishop and uh, started my life there and met my wife a couple of weeks later and we dated for a year and uh, came here for my wedding reception and I said to my father-in-law why doesn't everybody live here and he said I have no idea and uh, what time of year transfer- was your wedding reception <laughs> it was late April um, which is um, beautiful I mean could be sewing, you know, it could be 60. Uh, that's April in Wisconsin, but uh, it was beautiful and um, green and there was water everywhere. And that, that appealed to me giving my, my hobby, which we'll get into later. Um, but I transferred all my, my BYU credits, uh, except for the Book of Mormon class, which they wouldn't take for some reason. I, I don't know why, right? Um, <laughs> but, uh, and uh, graduated from here. I'm a badger. And, uh, uh, it's a it's a fun thing. There's a lot of connections with the University of Wisconsin, um, with with your your podcast and your friends. Uh, Spencer Fluman got his PhD here, and uh, I know he's been on your podcast. Yeah. and I've, I've I've I knew him when he was a, a grad student. That's small and, world. Uh, and Marion Bergen was is the wife of my bishop Alan Bergen the year I was at BYU with Stephanie, and he got his PhD here. Uh, in wow, I don't, in the '60s, I think. So, if you go to BYU graduation, you'll see a lot of red and white stoles on the faculty. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> well, so thanks. I know for a being... lot of people. Yeah, I know a lot of people at BYU on the faculty there just because they came through here. It's really interesting. It's a small world when it comes to the LDS Church. And just for uh, on behalf of our listeners, just as an overview and introduction, Darren serves as a bishop. In his congregation, he's been a bishop for about two years. He's also um, someone who's what I would call very supportive of LGBTQ people and trying to, within the doctrine of our church, to create more space and understanding and bring voice. And so um, neither Darren and I are officially speaking for the church. Darren holds, obviously, a bishop calling. We're not here like an official capacity to say this is how it works. We're just here as... Um, committed members of our church serving the best we can and sharing insights. I think I've asked Darren to share some of the things about what he's doing in his ward to help everybody feel welcome and safe and 
um, some of his insights that I think will be helpful for other local leaders that may be listening that are trying to create a feeling of Zion within their ward or stake. And also for those of us that are trying to better meet the needs of LGBTQ members, what can we do, what can we say um, to help um, better lift their load and, and see their contributions? Is that a f- And we started with prayer. Darren and I said a prayer before we started, and we just pray that um, there'll be nuggets of inspiration that Darren will share that will be helpful for you and give you a little more hope or a little more understanding. Um, is that a fair introduction, Darren? That's, that's beautiful. Um, Let's talk with you being called to be bishop. Um, <laughs> tell us how that went so, down. So this is funny. Um, I was always very content um, to serve in the background and, um, and didn't consider myself a leader in a, an official capacity um, and um, was enjoying my life in nursery um, as a nursery leader for several years. And there's no better place to be in the church. Um, my last official act as bishop will be to call myself to the nursery. Um, I love it. And um, I was in the nursery with like four kids on my lap reading books to them, and the state president stuck his head in the door about 10 years ago and said, well, Darren Bush, isn't it, isn't it great to see you um, doing what the Savior would do? And I thought he was being sarcastic, you know, but he wasn't. I said, well, this is where it starts, right here. And he said, you're right. And two weeks later, he called me and says, we want you to be on the high council. And I'm like, I, <laughs> why? <laughs> He said, because you get it. I said, okay. So I was on the high council. So I went from nursery to high council, which was interesting. And I traveled around a lot. And, uh, you know, that did that for a while. And then I was called from there to be in the YSA bishopric, which was also something that I was surprised by. And uh, that was a really interesting calling because the person who was called to be bishop didn't know me. And um, they basically gave him a list of people, um, Melchizedek priesthood holders that were over 50. And I didn't know about that, but that is something they, they usually look for, um, for YSA wards. I don't, I don't know why that is, but that's what they did. And I wasn't on that list. And, um, Bishop Hansen kept on looking at the list and saying, there's nobody here I want. And finally he said, what about Darren Bush? And they went, how do you know Darren? He's like, I don't, but someone said, He's a decent guy. And they said, well, he's 49. That's why he's not on the list. <laughs> so they called me to the bishopric. I met the bishop in the parking lot before we were sustained um, for the first time and served in the YSA bishopric, and it was lovely. I absolutely loved it. How long did you serve in that bishopric? Three years. Yeah, it was three years. And where is that ward located? Is it in Madison or somewhere else? It's in it's in Madison. It was uh, it was downtown. It was actually uh, they met in the institute building. That was the first chapel built in Madison uh, in the late fifties. That was dedicated by David O. McKay. Um, just a little tiny church, and um, and we met there, and it was wonderful, and I loved it, and um, loved my loved my kids. And um, funny, they called me Papa Bush too. That's um, great, which is kind of cool. Papa, Papa D sometimes. Um, so um, I heard they call you Papa Osler. And just yeah, well, warm my heart. Everybody over fifty, I guess, becomes a Papa. <laughs> yeah, you know what? You're right. Um, and especially if uh, they they don't have 
the best role models for papas. And that's something that I discovered, and I'm sure you did too, in the YSA ward, is a lot of these kids come from homes where they didn't have the best example. And in my patriarchal blessing, it says that my wife and I have a role that will be important as a couple. We always thought that would be, you know, serving a mission, you know, and maybe it will be, but but we learned, you know, very early on, we had a lot of the youth um, from the YSA in our house a lot because the, the other counselor and the bishop lived outside of our word boundaries up quite a ways away. And since we were the closest in to town, um, they gathered here a lot. And more than once I came home and someone had a key to the house and they were in the basement watching movies. I'm like, oh, hey, <laughs> look who's here. So anyway, after three years, um, they, you know, they don't like people serving more than three years out of their ward. At least that's how it is in, in around here. So I got put back into the ward and um, made me executive secretary as soon as I got back into the ward. Um, and I don't. I don't know why, because I'm not very organized. Um, <laughs> I'm not. In fact, I'm not organized at all. That's what I have smart people for. And um, but uh, then they called me to be in the bishopric shortly after that. Um, and then the bishop that I served under was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man. Um, he was released, and we knew he was coming up on being released. And I was the second counselor at the time, and and I thought, well, I'm I'm safe. And um, the state president calls me, and uh, or the the state uh, executive secretary calls me, and, and I know Kevin. He we uh, he was one of the wards I was in when I was on the high council, and uh, said, "Hey, uh, the state president wants to see you." And I went, "Oh, okay. What do I do?" He's like, "Nothing. It's all good." And I'm like, no, "Don't no." I, I don't want to, I, I like what I'm doing. He's like, no, it's all good. Don't worry about it. And he called my wife and said, we need to see you too. Um, can you, can you come out? And she said, okay. And she called me and I said, yeah, they called me too. Let's just, I have to go right from work. And she hung up the phone and just started bawling. And I said, and she told me this later. She's like, I knew exactly what they were going to do. I had no clue. And um, so I work in the outdoor industry. I own a, I own a specialty retail shop. Um, we sell canoes and kayaks, stand-up boards, and camping gear and stuff like that uh, here in Madison. And so that's my that's my love. I love paddling. I'm a paddler. And um, so I was wearing basically cargo shorts and um, <laughs> taco sandals and you know workwear. And I I told love it. I told Kevin. I'm coming straight from work, and he's like, the state president loves you. He doesn't care. So I didn't stop at home. I went straight there because I worked. We closed about six, and I took off. And I walk in, and our state president is just the loveliest man. Um, and he just sees me and smiles and says hi, and he puts his arm around me. And I said, sorry, I couldn't have time to put on my tie. And he's like, oh, we don't care. And we sit down. And he says, so, Stephanie, tell me about your husband. I went, no, 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 no. <laughs> and he said, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to her. And she said, he's the most wonderful man I know. And, you know, and does he have a testimony? She's like, yes, he does. And, you know, and, and I'm just sitting there going, no, no, no. And um, he finally looks at me and says, so Darren, we'd like to call you to be the bishop of the Madison First Ward. And I said, all right, you know me, right? And he said, yeah. I said, I 
I'm not a pious person. I'm pretty rough around the edges, actually. He said, yeah, I know. He said, I don't like how the church treats women and gay people. I think that there's some problems there that need to be solved. Um, I swear sometimes, and I'm, I'm, uh, I don't suffer fools lightly. Um, so I don't think I'm qualified for this. And he said, that's why we want you, because you don't want the job. And I said, well, but what about, I mean, I'm not going to change who I am. He's like, we don't want you to. You love everybody. That's what we want. That's what your ward needs right now. And I said, so you've been, you've thought about this. He says, Darren, we've been praying about it for three months. And you keep coming up. I said, okay, so all I have to do is love everybody? And he said, yeah. I said, okay, I can do that. And um, left, and my wife started crying, and I just started crying. I'm like, I don't need this right now. And she said, but the Lord needs you. That's what's needed right now. Um, We have about 450 members uh, a record in our ward right now. Um, So it's a huge ward. And um, it's an interesting composition of older people, um, graduate students, um, young working families uh, all across the board. Our primary, we have three nurseries. It's that kind of ward. Um, So it's big and diverse. Um, We don't have enough Spanish speakers in Madison for a Spanish branch. So the Spanish-speaking uh, uh, members meet with our ward, and sacraments are translated into Spanish. Cool. Um, and then they have their own Sunday school and, and priesthood. And so I have three counselors. I have uh, two English-speaking and one Hispanic counselor who's cool. from South America. And um, we have two elders quorums, English and Spanish-speaking. And we have a couple of French speakers that have the, the uh, meetings translated as well. So when I say it's a diverse ward, I mean it's a diverse ward. So I did not serve a Spanish-speaking mission. I served an Italian-speaking mission. So I speak Spanish with a very Italian accent. <laughs> and they think it's hilarious. Um, and they're actually they're, they're very sweet about it. I mean, I can do temple recommend interviews in Spanish. I can do the basic mm. things you need to do. But there's plenty of people in the world who speak Spanish and if there's a temple recommend interview that might go a little bit sideways I turn it over to my third counselor and if something goes off the rails he brings it back to me and then we translate that's cool so that's how the word is run um, lots and lots of very good people that are very competent and I try and stay out of their way this is a pretty tender story with you um, being called as bishop by a stake presidency that spent multiple months in thought and prayer. Um, I like that you were honest with some of your church concerns. I think a lot of really faithful, committed members are unsettled about some parts of our church, and I think that's fine. Um, I think you mentioned our gay members and women, and then I think you said, I swear. <laughs> they um, do. And, yeah. and then I, I have a picture the- of Jay Golden Kimball on the bulletin board in my office at church. <laughs> And because and I like the not? way, I think, my guess is if your stake president were on the podcast, he'd say, I know Darren really well. Um, and I've known him as a friend, and I've seen him in the stake, and I've seen him serve. And between my personal um, interaction with Darren and your wife, and I think her name is Stephanie, 
Yes. And uh, the Lord's impressions on me. I love then what he said to you that I need you to do and what you knew you could do. I need you to love everybody. How cool is that? Um, it's pretty cool. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Um, we start five minutes late all the time. And it's because I haven't hugged all the widows yet. I I really don't care about starting on time if I haven't hugged all the widows. That's I do that every week, and it's 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 critical um, because they get hugged once a week, right? These poor women, they get no physical contact. No one ever just comes up and hugs them and says I love you, and that's why we take care of widows, right? Um, I don't try and start late. But there are times when my first counselor, who is a gem and an engineer, <laughs> so it's like, Darren, now. Okay, so they drag me up to the stand. So the whole thing about being on the stand 10 minutes before to be a good example, sorry, <laughs> I don't do that. I'm trying to set a good example by hugging widows. It's more important than sitting up there looking good. Um, I don't us, yeah, often wear a white more. shirt. Tell us more about your ward and what you're doing to love everybody and helping everybody feel welcome and bring them um, to Christ. You don't wear a white shirt. I interrupted you. Tell us, tell our no, listeners. No, I don't. That. I don't often. I mean, I don't do it to make a statement. I do it because I don't want to wear a white shirt sometimes. And, you know, I've had a couple people say, gee, you're not wearing a white shirt. I said, well, let's talk about that. Um, and this gets to our discussion we can have about doctrine, dogma, practice, and folk and, and, and tradition. Um, so, you know, two of the members of my bishopric have beards. And I know that in some places that would be the stake president would say, you know, sorry, you got to shave it. And they won't because he would never ask them to because that's who they are. And. One of the things that I think helps everybody feel welcome in our ward is you are allowed to be you. You know, if you want to shave your head on one side, fine. You know, you want to work on a dye your hair purple, fine. You know, you want to come in cowboy boots, jeans, and a shirt, fine. I don't care. And I don't want anybody else to care. So I think I lead by showing people it's okay to be different, and and that's okay. And um, I, it reminds me, I had an incident last year where uh, a man came into the church um, looking for some help. He wasn't a member, um, but his son was. And he said, you know, I just got to town. You know, I'm staying at the homeless shelter. He said, I've got a job. I started on Monday. I just need some money to do the laundry. And I said, well, here's 20 bucks, right? And he's like, that, that's thank you. And um, we just talked for a while, and that doesn't come out of fast offerings. It's, you know, Darren's $20 rule. I mean, I'll give anybody 20 bucks if they need it, right? And, and you know, he came back the next week, and he was Catholic. He walks in the back row, or backs in the entrance, and crosses himself and sits down in the back row. And then his son comes in and sits next to him like, we win. <laughs> he came back. And... You know, we were, I'm sitting up on the stand seeing this, and I said, this is perfect. <laughs> this is absolutely perfect um, that he came back and went back and before he left, went back and grabbed him and, you know, 
gave a hug and said, welcome, glad you're here. How's work? He said, it's working out pretty good. So that's, that's what I do. Simple as that. Simple as that. I love um, your focus on the widows. I love that you'd like to start on time, but you just recognize you can do more maybe in that five minutes at times for somebody else. Uh, and so we've got, talk, talk about um, these words, doctrine, dogma, and practice. Oh, and then yeah. maybe culture so, too. This is something that I think would help. I think everybody in the church um, just kind of settle down a little bit. And there are doctrines. The doctrines of the church are beautiful um, and immutable and unchangeable. Um, the atonement of Jesus Christ is doctrine. It is beautiful, right? Um, the principles of the gospel, faith, repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost, not changing. Okay, preach the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, also not changing. So there are these things that don't change. Interestingly, um, they're kind of wrapped up in in mechanisms to allow us to do that efficiently. And um, so that's that's doctrine. And the church is not the doctrine. The church is the mechanism we use to implement the doctrine in our lives. So we are given programs. We are given structure and meetings to allow us to bring us to Christ. Um, in and of themselves, they're not really that important. So, you know, changing from three hours to two hours, that was great. Um, it has some unintended consequences for me. Um, what I learned is I'm just, I'm at church just as much as I was before. Um, but I used to grab people out of Sunday school and have conversations with them when I felt like it was needed and could do that without disturbing their family. And now I have to, you know, make other arrangements for that. But, um, that was a policy that has nothing to do with doctrine. They can make church 15 minutes with a prayer of the sacrament and send everybody home. And that would be that would be fulfilling um, what needs to get done for the, for the doctrine to be practiced. Um, they could make church five hours long, and it wouldn't matter. Um, so it, it's it's just a mechanism. And people our age, specifically our age, um, Richard, know about um, missions that were eighteen months. And not many people know about this, right? Um, unless you're 55 to 58 years old, something in there you don't know. But for a short period of time, the church changed missions, eight, um, duration of missions for elders from two years to 18 months for about two years. And then they changed it back to 24 months. And the reason they cut it short was because missions were getting expensive and they thought it was a burden on the families. And then they found out that Missionaries, especially foreign language speaking missionaries, were affected their last six months more than the rest of their mission. So they moved back again. And um, I'd been on my mission 11 months when they made that change. And the change was if you've been out less than a year, you go home at 18. If you've been out more than a year, you can choose anything between 18 and 24. So I wasn't given a, given a choice. And when I said, well, I don't like that, my, my, uh, Mission president said, are you, are you saying the brethren are wrong? I said, well, what do you, what do you say to that when you're a 20-year-old missionary, right? Um, said, well, you know, of course not. In my mind, I'm thinking, I don't have the brethren have anything to do with this. I think this is a policy change based on 
someone, you know, lower than that. And then they said, hey, we've looked at the numbers. They take it to the, the presidency or to whoever they take it to, missionary committee, and they say, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. Well, just like any other um, system, they didn't have all the information they needed, so they changed it back. Um, that doesn't mean the church isn't true. It means they're poking at it and trying to figure it out, just like everybody else. So um, another example of that Did is— you, I um, assume that didn't change right. for you to be served two years. It, it was that yeah, way through. Go ahead. Sorry. Did you serve two years or 18 months? 18 months. I didn't have a choice. You didn't have a choice, and it didn't reverse back until you were long home. Yeah, I was married. <laughs> and um, the interesting thing was, and, and of course, missionaries are missionaries, and they do things sometimes. Um, when um, when they changed it to go to, eight, to, to 18 months, so people had been out more than a year, actually had a tough time because they could choose between 18 and 24 and there was a lot of well cultural you know, you pressure 18 you're not you're not valiant you know and and uh, you should serve your whole 24 and um just judgment and stuff like that which and you're in italy you know, you're in italy learning a language aren't you yeah right wow so um, just as an aside <laughs> i was in england um, about 23 months out when that change happened and yeah. <laughs> I kind of just was grateful. I just, I love the way you framed that up is as they got better, I've always thought better information results in better revelation. And, um, and I like your phrase poking at it. They were, the intent was try to improve things. The missionary program, right. make us more effective, balance, um, financial needs and the mission of the church. And, yeah, I think if people are unsettled like you were as a missionary, we need to create space for people to be unsettled as they continue to stay on the covenant path and are committed to the church. You know, right? And so I think that's a good principle you f teach firsthand with your own experience. People are allowed to make mistakes. I mean, the atonement is Plan A, right? I tell my 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 sheep this all the time. I said, "Look, the atonement's Plan A. And there's no Plan B." You're going to make mistakes. That's part of the reason we're here. And you're going to mess up, and that's okay. You're expected to. I'm not saying try to, but you're going to. It's part of the human condition. And that's why there's an atonement. Otherwise, we wouldn't need it. So don't be afraid of making mistakes. Don't be afraid of, of trying things. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And that's okay. And um, part of that I learned in my business is part of my spiritual practice. It really is, um, because I'm not afraid to make mistakes at my business, because the worst thing that can happen is it doesn't work, and we do something else. And we did that in the ward as well. We tried different things. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. We tried to do too many linger longers. Well, too many doesn't work, so we cut it back. And, um, you know, we, we tried to do some stuff with the, the, the Hispanic members, and uh, some of those things worked, some of those things didn't. And so you can't be afraid to try things. And that's true of, of an organization. It's also true of an individual. And um, we have a little mantra in our family, what's the worst thing that can happen? And it sounds fatalistic, but it actually isn't. Um, when I bought my business, uh, we, we were all in. I mean, I cashed out my IRA and hawked my house. And, you know, we were all in. 
And, you know, I said to my wife, if this doesn't go well, we're going to be bankrupt. She said, oh, what's the worst that can happen? We go bankrupt. And, right? And you get a job, and I get a job, and we get a two-bedroom apartment, and we start over again. You know? We still, we still have each other. You know, we have, we have the gospel. That's really all anybody needs. And um, because we weren't attached to the idea of this goes badly, what's going to happen, um, it doesn't matter. In the eternal scheme of things, you know, what happens doesn't really matter that much. So focusing on, you know, what, what is good and what is necessary, our relationship with each other and, uh, and our family is all that was really important. So we took a big risk, and it, 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 it paid off okay. You know, it, doing okay. Any more you want to share about um, doctrine, dogma, or practice before we move on to another topic? Yeah, so um, it, it's, I think that the key to being happy in the church, one of the keys to being church, is to differentiate between those things and, and, and then let things go. Okay, um, here, here's a great example of doctrine. Doctrine is we take the sacrament as emblems of the body and blood of Christ. Um, dogma is we take it with our right hand. Um, there's nothing anywhere, anywhere that says you need to take the sacrament with the right hand. Um, but some people, it just feels wrong because they've been doing that way for so long. Well, I have, I have a, a, a problem with my right hand. Um, I, I had a, an accident with the table saw years ago, and it's kind of hard for me to grab things with my, my index finger um, if, they're, if they're little. Normally, it doesn't bother me at all, but trying to grab a sacrament cup with my right hand is tricky. So I have to kind of monkey with it a little bit. And without drawing attention to myself, I try and do it. <laughs> and sometimes I have to switch hands. Um, that doesn't make the sacrament invalid, right? And uh, you know, I, I heard someone say, well, my dad once said that my grandpa said that, that a man who gives a blessing without a white shirt and a tie on isn't exercising his priesthood. Well, that's nice. Um, <laughs> that would be an example of dogma in the worst way. That's, that's not even dogma, that's tradition. And while tradition has its place, not if it displaces doctrine. And um, we can't focus on things that don't matter. We're going to lose the big picture, which is the atonement of our Savior and the saving ordinances. Everything else is secondary to that. Women on our ward wear jumpsuits and pants. It's no big deal. And, you know, my daughter is a school teacher. She wears, she goes, she wears a jumpsuit to church because, guess what, sometimes she's chasing kids around. If you're in the nursery, you're wearing a dress, that's a pain in the butt. So, um, and people who move here sometimes like, oh, you know, she's wearing pants. It's like, why are we even talking about this? Does this really matter at all about, I mean, we focus on these weird things. And I love your, your podcast on, is she wearing her temple garment? Um, it's that kind of thing that's like, why, why do we, why do you care? It's none of your business, you know? And, you know, I, a person once, their, their mom said to them, um, I'm worried about your eternal salvation. And her response was beautiful. It's, Mom, how about you worry about yours, and I'll worry about mine. And um, just we don't make covenants to make sure everybody else takes, keeps their covenants, right? 
Right. We, we make covenants for us, not for everybody else. So being being that that kind of judgmental doesn't do anybody any good. Why do you think we like sometimes just, get in this rambling thing? here? <laughs> Why did I love your example of taking the sacrament with the right hand, and that is not right. anywhere in any. It's a preference, or it's dogma. It's just, but it's not part of our doctrine, and 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 rightly so, as you share. That doesn't that if we get so focused on that, we forget the big picture. Other examples of that that come to mind that you're trying to, you know, make sure we don't get in your ward kind of. It used those keeping us sidetracked from bigger issues or bigger purpose. Um, well, men wearing pants is another one, which yeah. I think is just I, we shouldn't waste any more breath on that one. Um, you know what people wear to church. Um, what we tell investigators and, and a lot of our investigators, um, like in many situations, you know they're looking for something. Sometimes they're not they're not the most well off, and you know the Hispanic community. They don't have suits. They don't have shirts and ties. And then they look around, and it's like I, I don't, I don't, I don't have that. It's like you know what? Wear the best you have, the cleanest you have. That's all we care about. You're just showing respect to the Lord, you know. And that's really what the dress code is: is how respectful can you be? And you can show up at a certain tie and be completely disrespectful. You can show up in jeans and a t-shirt and be respectful. And uh, I have a friend who is a bishop. <laughs> Um, and, uh, he was, there was a guy in his congregation who was, who was, um, not less active, completely inactive. And he went to visit him. He's like, you know, I don't feel comfortable coming to church for a lot of reasons. He said, I smoke, I drink, and I don't have a shirt and tie. And he said, if you come to church next week, you wear jeans and a t-shirt and I'll wear jeans and a t-shirt deal. He's like, yeah, right. He said, no deal. Right. So he wore jeans and a T-shirt the next week and sat on the stand. And this other member, this brother, wore jeans and a T-shirt. And he was there. And that is all that matters is that they are in there, sitting there, participating, feeling loved. That's what they cool. wear, I don't care. It's really cool. What talk that's about, Christ-like, right? It is. I mean, that's that, what Christ would do. That is what Christ would do. Talk about your youth. I don't know how many are in your youth and— just, I haven't been a bishop of youth. I've been a bishop of a YSA group. But just talk to our listeners about youth age twelve to nineteen, and and what issues they faced, and their good hearts, and what you do to help move them forward in their lives. Um, what issues they face are not being trusted by their parents. Um, in general, um, I mean that's not true for all of them. But I, I think sometimes we think that all youth, if you if you give them a little bit of leash, they're going to go crazy. And we don't give them enough the respect that's due to them. If you treat them with respect as adults and and give them expectations, my experience is they is they fulfill that. Um, if you treat them like infants, they'll behave like infants. Um, a fourteen year old kid definitely needs guidance, but not that much. Um, you know, a light hand on the tiller is a good thing with youth. The most important thing is they know that they're loved, period, unconditionally and without reservation. And if they know that, they will come to you and they will talk to you and they will tell you anything. And um, I don't have a desk in my office. Well, no, I have a desk in my office It's at church. It's pushed off into the corner. Um, when I talk to someone, we're sitting face to face. I often put them in the comfortable chair 
and um, it puts them a little bit higher than me, which is not a bad thing. And uh, they feel like, hey, I get the comfy chair. And um, you should see them change when you do that, when you change the power gradient and you know put them in a position of comfort and it's like okay i'm just i'm just here as your you know as your friend you know yeah i'm your bishop but i'm just your friend that loves you and let's talk and they'll tell you things um almost without shame which is a beautiful thing because i'm not a big i'm not a big fan of shame um and they'll they'll ask for help when they need it and they'll talk to you so um, we have uh, we have about a dozen young men. About eight of them uh, attend regularly, and probably about the same young women. And um, they all come from different situations. Some of them come from you know typical families with you know mom and dad and kids. Some come from single parents. Um, some have really good home lives. Some have really bad home lives. Um, you just have to love them. I, I, I keep saying this. It's like, why is this so hard? Um, even when they do things they shouldn't do. In fact, especially when they do things they shouldn't do. And, you know, there's there's a young woman in our ward who um, comes from a very difficult family situation. Her mother is delightful. Her dad, not so much. Um, they're divorced. Um, she doesn't have a good male role model in her life. Um, she doesn't know what it's like um, to have an adult man um just love her unconditionally and um she every week she runs up and hugs me and says you know hi bishop d or you know whatever she calls me and i said how are you this week she's like i'm doing okay you need to talk no i'm good this week and then sometimes it's you need to talk yeah can we go for a walk so um our church is um has a it's on a corner so it's got a long a long sidewalk so a lot of the times when I'm interviewing kids, I'm not interviewing, I'm walking, you know, side by side with them and just talking to them. So um, getting out of the office is a really important thing. Um, bishop's office are terrifying places. You know, they shouldn't be, but it's it's still, it's a scary place, right? And um, if I get them out of the office and just walk around, the the tension drops and they'll just talk to me. So sometimes I get hot chocolate with them, you know, I'll, I'll try and try and talk to them in places where it's not intimidating. There's a couple of wonderful nuggets there. We've never, anybody in this podcast has never talked about the physical layout of a bishop's office. And I'm having flashbacks because um, I tried to put my desk in the corner so I could never sit behind it. And I can't remember who told me I couldn't do that if it was a church leader or a fellow counselor. and But um, the only time I got behind it was ward council. Um, so mm -hmm. they told me I needed to be behind my desk for ward council. And uh, before that, I'd even sat just in a, sem a circle with the whole ward council. I didn't want to mm -hmm. be behind the desk. I wanted to be <clears throat> kind of equal footing with the other members of the ward council. So I would just yep. take a regular chair and just sit randomly with the ward council and and I didn't do any of my bishop interviews across the desk. I didn't like that. Um, I just did, and I love what you said. I actually give um, the young the, the young people the better chair. What kind of yeah. a message does that send, Bishop Bush? Um, I'm just thinking of all the visual 
you're creating in that bishop's office to help um, somebody feel safe they can talk to you. And that comes natural to you. That's not in a handbook. I assume that's not in a training meeting. That's just something that comes natural to for you. And the idea that walking outside um, where it's still, you know, you can still have some privacy, but they would maybe feel more comfortable opening up. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, well, no one wants to walk out of the bishop's office crying, <coughs> right? I mean, think about that, right? You're, you walk out of the bishop's office and you're crying and someone's standing there to come in and it's like, oh, great. You know, well, that, went, that went well. Um, but if you're out walking around and they get emotional, you know, you just keep walking for a few minutes, let them, let them get it together, give them a tissue. And then, okay, you ready to go back in? Yep, okay. But yeah, I don't, I don't know whoever told you you can't do that. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember either. I don't uh, want to put somebody under the bus, but I can't. Well, if I went on a podcast, I'd, I'd, I'd use a term to describe that that I won't use. Um, but no, that's, that's, that's nonsense. That's another word. I'll use nonsense instead. Um, because where, where is it? Where is it written? Nowhere. Yeah. Right? It might be tradition. What it really is is a 1950s corporate artifact, right, where the powerful person sits behind the desk and the not powerful person sits in front of the desk. Like being in the principal's office. So do you really want to be like the principal of the ward? Do you want to be the father of the ward? Yeah, I was having a discussion maybe eight or ten years ago with my resident stake president about the executive secretary and my feelings about the naming of that calling that I don't I didn't want to be an an executive and um, <laughs> rightly so, to your point, that's a relic from sort of a corporate infrastructure. I I never renamed my executive secretary, but I I wanted to call him my assistant or my coworker or something that just felt less corporate. Uh, did you yeah. have you ever had any thoughts on that calling? Do you have an administrative assistant at work? Yeah, the woman who runs our office, I feel like I report to her. She so she just keeps everybody right. in line, but she technically is our administrative assistant, yeah. Yeah, what do you call her at work though? Allison. <laughs> right. Perfect. Yeah, and there you go. Title. Um, yeah. No, it's, it's you, you call her the most important important person in your business. I mean, um, and my business probably isn't quite as formal as yours. We're pretty, I mean, the outdoor industry is pretty laid back um, in terms of dress code. I mean, <laughs> if I'm wearing a, button, a shirt with buttons on it, that's a good day. Um, and, and I really like not having to put on a uniform to go to, go to work because I have to put it on to go to church. And I do love um, your social media in the summertime when you're out on the the rivers and the lakes. You just it's great. Yeah, well, I've had some really good interviews with youth in a canoe because you know just paddling along. And uh, I used to do this thing with the state, the state presidency um, before um, um, some schedules changed, but I called it paddling with Mormons and. Um, it's PWM, we're going to have paddling with Mormons, and I would invite the state presidency to come down to my shop, and we'd just throw a couple of boats in the water and go for a paddle on, on the lake. And, and it was really fun because we'd just talk. And, and you know, we didn't talk about anything specifically, but one of the times one of the counselors says, hey, we need a new bishop for the YSA ward. What do you think? I said, that's not my job. He said, well, what about this person? I said, that doesn't feel right to me. He said, what about this person? I said, that sounds perfect. And they said, that's what we thought too. And so, you know, it was just, just out, out talking. And um, they, they really taught me a lot. 
um, the first six months I was in Bishopric, I was really struggling because we had a lot of welfare issues with people who were had severe mental illness. Um, and you know, we're, we're trying to keep them housed, right? Not, not just healthy, but just not on the street. And, um, and, and, and it's not like the church is broke, right? I mean, they can afford to pay fast offerings. Um, but there was one member who was just very, very consumptive, um, serious, serious mental problems. And I was out paddling with, uh, with um, Steve, one of the big presidency, and he said, I, I can tell you're troubled about something. And I said, yeah, I'm just, the, the welfare stuff is just really hard. And he said, well, I mean, I was a bishop. I wrote the mission. President said, I want to, I want some welfare missionaries to come into the ward. I want to get a set of those so they can help the people that are always, you know, struggling to kind of get their, you know, get their life together and learn how to budget and all that stuff. And, he said, and the mission president said, no, sorry, not not a good use of resources. So he was young and stupid, so he wrote a letter to Bishop Cosset, or was it Bishop Cosset? It was before the presiding bishop, anyway, and said, um, I need uh, some, some welfare missionaries for my ward. And they wrote back and said, no. And then somebody from the bishop, the presiding bishop office called him and said, look, here's the deal. There's going to be people you deal with who are going to be on church welfare the rest of their lives. That is a fact. You just have to get used to it, okay? You're not going to teach a person who has borderline personality disorder and schizophrenia how to budget, right? Um, so, so don't. Just, you know, work with the system, work with, you know, the community, the community resources, and bring all those to bear and, and help, help your member. And um, I had this huge sigh of relief. It's like, so I don't have to fix everybody's stuff. He's like, you, Darren, you can't. You just can't. So um, those, those kinds of things happen when you're just in, in informal settings is where I learn everything. And um, so that's, that's, um, that's, that's one reason I like being on the water. But yeah. Do you feel like you don't quite fit a typical bishop? Or do you feel like, uh, how do you feel about that? Because you're, you're different than a typical bishop. And do, some, do sometimes you wonder if it's okay to be you? Or, or you just know that being you is what, who you are and what the Lord needs you to be to meet the needs of the people in your ward? Um, I'm very comfortable being exactly who I am. And if that's, um, I, I'm, I would not. I would be an effective bishop if I tried to put on some sort of airs and act like a bishop is supposed to act. And I think people do that sometimes, and I think it actually hurts them because it makes them unapproachable. And if someone radically changes their personality when they'd be called to be a bishop, I would wonder what's going on with that person. And um, I, I, I actually, and I struggle with this, and this is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, is holiness versus piety. And um, I strive very hard to be holy, um, but I I couldn't give a fig for for piety. There's there's no reason um, to pretend like you're anything different than you are. And um, it's just it's I, I I don't I don't know how to say this. I'm working very hard every day to try and be a better person. Um, I really want to be 
more like Christ. I, I don't like some of the rough edges I have. I'd like to, I'd like to knock them out a little bit. And I, and I am, I'm, I'm getting much better. Um, my, my quota of swear words is dropping. Um, <laughs> so I have my own little swear jar. Um, and it goes to the humanitarian aid fund. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not, awesome. I'm not trying to be flippant. I just, uh, I, I'm not a pious person. It doesn't work for me. Yeah. I mean, I would just think that, that your ward loves you for who you are and recognizes you're pretty authentic. And I would guess if I'm sitting in your ward, I just know I can talk to you about stuff in my life. And um, you've just communicated or signaling is what some people call it, just that you're safe um, to talk to. And I've always felt that's one of the greatest things a local leader can do is to create a feeling about him. Um, Our own bishop got vulnerable in his testimony meeting where he just talked about his own weight. Um, It was really unique because... I'm a little overweight, and I think, he, and he just said, I've been overweight, and I keep going to these physicals, and they keep telling me I need to lose weight, and it's been really hard for me, and and there wasn't really a resolution. He didn't, like, announce to the ward he's going to lose X number, but he was just kind of real as part of his testimony, and I saw a human side of him and a vulnerable side of him, and it, it was signaling to me that, you know, I could just talk to this guy because um, he's pretty real. And he doesn't need to be the perfect person to preside over a ward. Um, it was just, I, I think, so I like that. And I would guess if we had your ward members on, they would say the same things about you, that you're committed to the church, you're doing your best to live the gospel, um, but you're also just who you are, and that you're pretty approachable because you're pretty real. Oh, that's Lucy. Yeah. <laughs> I have a very large dog. We, so had a very dog large named, dogs. we had a dog named Lucy once. We've got about... Yeah, we've got Come about on, Lucy. Ten... It's about side. <laughs> yeah, Lucy's a, a 10-month-old uh, Newfoundland Pyrenees puppy who weighs 90 pounds. And um, I'm kind of terrified she's going to keep growing, but she's a sweetheart. Um, Talk about yeah, so, so, LGBTQ. We're about 50 minutes, and I'd love to keep these about an hour. Talk about... How did you connect with this space? I think that's the first way we crossed paths was just our joint interest in trying to help our LGBTQ friends. How did you connect to this space? And what are your yeah, thoughts so on this topic? This is a, this is a cool story, um, and it's about me being educated. So I grew up in a you know, fairly conservative Mormon family um, in Southern California, and um, we didn't really know any gay people. Well... No, that's not true. We didn't know any out gay people. I mean, there's plenty of gay people around. The only gay people that we knew that were out were usually, you know, people in my school who were in drama and very much out and, and very out about it. And um, I didn't dislike them. I was in music and, and um, it was just they weren't part of my world, right? They weren't, I wasn't friends with them wasn't enemies, they just weren't part of my life, right? And um, a beautiful thing happened. In 1994, we bought a little house, a little two-bedroom house, uh, in this little neighborhood in Addison. It was our first house. And um, we had, Whitney was about four, and um, 
or four or five, and Ian was a newborn, next to this wonderful gay couple that had been together longer than we had been married. And um, the, the Dons, Don and Don. And um, they were just, from the time we moved in, the kindest, most wonderful people. Um, to the extent where my daughter, um, I was trying to teach her how to ride a bike and rapidly losing patience. And Don came out and put his arm around me and said, I got this. Go in the house. So my gay next-door neighbor taught my daughter how to ride a bike. Um, <laughs> when my daughter's appendix ruptured, they were the first ones at the hospital. I mean, these are, these are Christian people. These are truly Christ-like people. And we had this great conversation once. I was, we had this fence between us. It was kind of like the guy in Home Improvement, right? I could just barely see over it. And they were sitting in their patio, just kind of hanging out and, you know, reading the newspaper and listening to the radio. And their laundry was drying. And I said, oh, it's the Dons living that disgusting homosexual lifestyle, reading the paper in front of everybody and drinking Diet Coke. He's like, yes, and laundry. Our laundry is right here where everybody can see it. You know, and we're just cracking up, right? It's hilarious. And, but it led to an interesting conversation. Because um, I says, yeah, there really isn't a homosexual lifestyle, is there? He's like, yeah, you're looking at it. <laughs> he said, there's no heterosexual lifestyle, is there? I'm like, no, of course not. He said, right. He said, Darren, Castro Street is just as foreign to me as Girls Gone Wild is to you and Mardi Gras, right? So when your only example of, of what homosexuality looks like is a gay pride parade from, from Castro Street shown on the news, it's like, yeah, okay, that's part of the, you know, that's part of the LGBTQ experience. But it's a very small part of it, just like Mardi Gras, you know, girls flashing people to get beads. That's not part of what the heterosexual experience is, except in a very small way. So it isn't about sexuality. Um, that, that was one of these, oh, yeah, of course. And we, we, we stayed friends for years until um, they moved away. We're still friends on Facebook. I still love them dearly. Um, but they, they came to, our, to my defense a couple times um, uh, during Prop 8 because people were just, you know, trashing, trashing the LDS church and trashing Mormons. And he was on a message board, and he spoke and said, look, you're painting everybody with a, with a broad brush just like you accuse them of doing. Um, my next door neighbor is Mormon and his family's Mormon and we've never met anybody that loved us more. So stop it. That, that was kind of the start of um, my involvement uh, with the LGBTQ community. And then I joined, um, my business joined the, the um, Madison Queer, um, a chamber of commerce even though we're not i'm not gay it doesn't matter it just means we're supportive of the community um and then um i started advertising with my business in our lives magazine and our lives magazine is a madison lgbtq publication that's actually spreading out to southern wisconsin it's it doesn't take um ta alcohol or tobacco ads which is a mainstay in a lot of lgbtq um magazines because they're money, right? 
and they're trying to run on a shoestring. And it's hard to run a magazine without taking alcoholic tobacco ads. So because they don't have alcohol, alcohol tobacco ads, they are in the in the high school libraries. So queer kids in the high school um, can read this about people that are like normal people. So Madison's a little different, obviously, but like the president of one of the HMOs here is, is uh, a gay man who's competent, wonderful, and amazing. Um, and I mean, we all know that the talent in the LGBTQ community is, is <laughs> I mean, the, the artistry and the music and the competence and, and our financial planner is a married lesbian who lives around the corner from the church who um, is one of the favorite, my favorite people in the world. And so my life is very rich and very full because of that. And I'm the only Mormon bishop that ever wrote an article for their newspaper, for their new, for their magazine. Wow. Um, and the title was called an unlikely ally, <laughs> which, which cracked me up. But, um, so the LGBTQ community knows who I am. Um, some of them are a little bit nervous because I'm affiliated with the church. They think hates them. Um, and I can't change that. What I can change is how they feel about me. So I go to the open dinners, which is the, um, the, it's the business group, um, in Madison. So, um, it's, it's, it's like a chamber of commerce basically. And we have speakers and we sponsor it. And whenever they say, you know, sponsored by Rudy Vega paddle sports, it's like, woo. <laughs> so, um, it's, it, it's not like I'm doing anything different than most people would do if they understand, um, the community. And I had a really good mentor. The publisher of the magazine told me, here's how you work with the gay community. And I said, oh, wait, invite them to your store and treat them like humans when they get there. And he looked at me and says, yeah, it's kind of that simple. And um, I had a, a colleague from another state call me one time. He said, it seems like you're really good at marketing to those gays. How do you do that? And I said, well, first of all, I don't call them those gays. <laughs> you idiot. And, and second of all, um, I invite them to my store. When they get there, I love them. Like, yeah, but like, you know, how do you market to them? I said, how do you invite people to your store? He's like, well, you know, I advertise. And I said, yeah, you do that. I mean, there's no difference. They are just people. And when we start segmenting them into the other, um, we kind of lose the idea of, you know, they're not a demographic to be marketed to. They're a group to be loved. And that's true of everybody. Do you ever just happen? Do you ever do you ever doubt yourself in saying you're doing something inconsistent with what Christ would do or our teachings of our church? And if you do, what sort of doctrinal foundation or Christ foundation keeps you um, being able to do this? Um, Well, I'll ask you the question back. What, What what have I just said that would lead you to believe that that would be the case? And nothing. And so that's right. I mean, my answer to my question to you would be, you're just doing what Christ did, and you didn't sell out our doctrine. You didn't compromise nope. anything that we stand for and we believe as Latter-day Saints to do what you're doing. And in fact, you are doing what Christ did, was just see everybody as the same human family and invite people to your table, so to speak, that society said didn't belong there. And, yep. 
And so, uh, and you just humanized a group of people by getting to know them that sometimes it's, we do humanize people until we get to know them. So I love what you're doing. And if you've got a closeted LGBTQ youth or ward member that becomes aware of what you're doing, I'm thinking if I'm that person and I do need to come out to somebody, I know I can talk to Bishop Bush. Or um, even if you're not um, LGBTQ and you're kind of aware of what you're doing and you just need to talk to Bishop Bush about complicated stuff, I'm thinking to myself, this guy can probably handle it. He may not know all the answers to everything, but he's safe for me to talk to about what's going on in life because I've just seen how he loves everybody. So I call that, no, I call that sort of, I call that, you know, signaling and creating an environment where, you know, people will talk. Well, I, I have a little lapel pin that I wear at church. That's uh, you've probably seen in their little little CTR shields with a rainbow on them. This is "I'll Walk with You," which is my favorite primary song. And it's no big deal. It's just a little tiny pin. And pr- pretty soon, all my counselors and relief society presidents like, "Oh, I want one of those too." So I bought a big bag of them. So the leadership in our ward, a lot of them wear these on their lapels. And again, signaling, it's just saying, you know, if you're worried, you know, you can talk to me. And there's there's people in our ward that, that are that are queer, um, that participate. Um and, you know, I I when I talk to people outside the church, it's like, what do you think about the church's stance against gay marriage? I'm like, um, that that's their stance against gay marriage and I I think gay marriage would be wonderful. They're like, Really? I'm like, Yeah, how can you say that? I said, Because um, civil marriage is civil marriage. You know, I didn't say that temple marriages are, you know, those should happen because that's not, that's out of my pay grade. But I have to think at some point that, that civil marriage will be accepted um, because that's going to open up the church to a whole lot of people that currently can't participate. We have lots and lots to add, including several friends of mine. And, um, they love the church. They have testimonies of the gospel. They're just currently not participate, participating because they're in a, in a same-sex marriage. Um, and again, I can't predict this. I'm not advocating for it. Um, I don't get up on the pulpit and say, hey, everybody, I think you should do this. That's not my place. But if someone asks my opinion, I'll tell them. And, you know, the brethren have made it clear that if you if you support same-sex marriage on social media or whatever, that's, that doesn't, that, that's fine. I mean, they, they, they said that, and Joseph Smith was very clear about those sorts of things in terms of being, um, you know, you, you can think what you want to think, you know, and you only have to believe something if it's true. And um, if, if for some reason, you know, you, you cross the line when you get up and say, yeah, you know what, and the brethren are wrong about this, um, and... You know, everybody's wrong about a lot of things, but that doesn't mean you need to be the person that fixes it, right? Um, so I don't agree with the general authorities on everything, but that's okay. Um, I support them and sustain them, just like my staff support and sustain me when they say, I don't think this is a good idea. I think you should do this instead. Um, that's sustaining me. You know, that's that's giving me information that I didn't have. And again, that's different than, you know, because of the the nature of the church. You know, general authorities are called and inspired by God to do what they're supposed to do. Um, so I, 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 I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just 
calling it like I see it, I guess. And um, I love your honesty, and I think um, it helps us all just be honest as we're doing our best going forward. Um, I talk to in this. I have one more question that comes to my mind, yeah. Aaron. Talk to a listener who's barely hanging on to the church and just wondering. And I realize you may not know the backstory. Um, just talk to somebody who's saying, "I'm, you know, I just don't know if I can stay." What would you say? We need you. That we need you. Um, you know Philip Barlow. Have you had him on your podcast? No, I haven't. Um, Philip Barlow is one of my unintentional mentors. And you may not even remember this conversation, but when I was in grad school, I was I was, I was 28. Um, that's when I was told that the three the three enemies of the church are feminist intellectuals and homosexuals. And um, I was in graduate school, and I'm thinking, well, I'm two of those three. What does that What does that leave me? You know, and that's something that is not doctrinal. That's that's somebody's opinion. And um, and Philip Barlow was a visiting professor at the University of Rochester, and we were sitting outside the doc, the, the bishop's office and um, waiting for um, um, board council or PEC, waiting for PEC to start. And um, he said, so Darren, what do you think about you know homosexuality? And I gave him some mealy mouth answers. You know, well, it's, you know, it's it's no one really knows. There's a lot of lot of stuff people don't know yet. And, he said, what do you think about abortion? I said, oh, I, you know, it's, it's a complex subject. And, you know, some people say it's murder. Some people don't. And he's like, what do you think? I said, you know, I don't really know. And he said, um, that's not acceptable. He said, you need, to, you need to dig into this stuff hard and look at it critically because someday you'll be a leader in the church and the church needs you to stay. And at this point, he had not known that I was, you know, had doubts and was struggling. And I think a lot of people think that if you have doubts and are struggling, you don't belong. And I was Elders Corp president for heaven's sakes, you know, and he said, well, you need to think about these things. You need to have, you need to spend time um, investigating, praying about, so you have answers and you can give them. You know, and uh, it was just one of those things where it was the first time you said you need to be intellectually honest if you're going to be a member of the church. Um, just like you can't survive on borrowed light, you can't survive on on an unexamined life. You know, you can't you can't just say in Sunday school, well, you know, the brethren say this, so you know the thinking the thinking is done, and that's another another dogmatic thing that I don't like as well. When the brethren speak, the thinking's done. Um, Joseph Smith would roll over in his grave if he heard that. It's not true, right? This, that's when the thinking starts. It's like, okay, where are they coming from? Why do they say that? What are they thinking? And I've never had a, a church authority say, you just need to shut up and not think about it anymore. Um, and Hubie Brown said, you know, we're not so, so, so concerned that your thoughts are orthodox or heterodox but that you have thoughts. And um, that, that to me is kind of, that kind of wraps it up in a nutshell. You need to think about the gospel and ponder it and, and exercise it and, 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 and poke at it a little bit and say, how does it fit into my life really? You know, can I have spiritual conversations with people in a way that is real and authentic? 
and I'll tell one little more story, then I'll shut up. Um, I was on the phone with someone at work one time. It was a, one of my vendors, I think, someone who was at one of the factories, out, and they had an Italian last name. I said, your last name? And it was, was Colicchio. I said, that's a good Sicilian name. And he kind of stopped and said, how do you know I'm Sicilian? I said, well, I was a missionary there. I said, no kidding. He started talking. I said, hey, what's your dad's, you know, my grandpa was born in Palermo. I said, cool, what's your grandpa's name? And he told me, I said, you know, about when he was born? I said, yeah, I think it was like 1915 or something. And I'm tappity, 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 right, in family search. And it comes out, I'm like, oh, your grandpa was born just outside of Palermo in this place called Aciriale. He's like, what? How do you know that? I said, I'm looking it up online right now. I said, give me your email. I'll send you a link. So we had a five-minute conversation after we had done business about I was a missionary and here's your ancestor on family search. And who knows what's going to come of that. Wow. And I didn't do that as a missionary thing. I did that as a Darren thing. But guess what? It happened to be a missionary thing, right? So just live the gospel out loud. You know, you be you. And if you do that, cool things happen, you know? Why, well, when you, um, I don't think, you know, you inferred you went through a faith crisis, just, uh, you know, why did you, if you ever felt you were going to leave the church, why did you stay? Why do you stay a committed member of the church? <laughs> you know what my wife would say? Because if we leave, they win. It's as simple as that. Um, if everybody who has a faith transition leaves the church, what's left behind is something that is far less rich than it should be. Um, the church doesn't want a bunch of people that are compliant and non-thinkers. The most important thing an organization has is a dedicated, loving critic. Someone whose who's, who's testimony and dedication and loyalty to the organization is about question. Because if you're going to throw rocks and you're on the fringes, they'll just think, well, that person just, just doesn't care about the church and they're just being critical. But when a person who has the testimony and loves the Savior and believes that the church is the mechanism for the Savior to implement his work on the earth, then you can say, you know what, I don't like how this works. And I'll give you a quick example. So I was in a, in a bishopric training with the whole stake and uh, we were talking about about a year ago talking about you know safety and you know the whole thing about they were worried about sexual abuse which they should be worried about but they're talking about um, you know all the windows and two up and two, or two deep and all that and I'm like that's that's great I said so and then here's the bishop hotline you can call if there's abuse and I said so what if one of my members calls the bishop hotline and says, I'm being abused, what would they tell her? They would tell her to go to the bishop. I said, what if I'm the one abusing her? And they got quiet. <laughs> I said, look, I'm not here to protect the church. I'm here to protect the individual. There should be a hotline for people to call. Not, not the bishop, but people. That is my feeling. So I, I want the individual to be safe. So if I were in charge, which I'm not, I would have a hotline for people to call. It isn't through their bishop. And it's really quiet. 
And then the state prison said, well, that's why you're the bishop of the Madison First Ward. So thank you. And then afterwards, four or five bishops came up in the hallway and said, thank you for saying that. I said, how come you never say that in the meeting, right? It's like the board meeting after the board meeting, right? Everybody goes out in the hallway and says, yeah, you were right. I'm like, say it in there, okay? <laughs> so that, those are kind of questions that you have to ask out loud. It's uncomfortable, right? I mean, I put myself in a position that was kind of weird, right? What if I'm the one that's abusing her? There's no place for her to go, right? And I have several friends who had very bad reactions to uh, – had, had bad experiences with their bishops and have left the church as a result. One was being abused by her husband and was told, you're making this up. Um, and look, uh, we all – they call it the bishop lottery, right? There's 30,000 of us. Not all of us are going to be effective. And we're all highly imperfect. That's kind of the nature of being human. Um, but I hear things like that, and just, I just cringe. And when my cousin says, I'd still be in the church if you were my bishop, I just weep. Um, and uh, this is really hard for me to even talk about. Um, we need to do better at listening. We need to do better at loving. And we need to do better at learning. So thank you for having a podcast that does all those things. Well, thank you, Bishop Darren Bush, our friend. And there's been some wonderful insights and nuggets. And I think a lot of our listeners just feel like they could talk to you about anything and feel your love and your good heart, your understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and just recognizing we need to do better. I think it's you can be faithful LDS and recognize we need to do better and just support our leaders and sustain and support them as they help us continue to do better. We've had a lot of adjustments in 2019. Um, I certainly think that creates an, a, a feeling that we can continue to have adjustments as we continue to fully restore the church. So, um, right. God's it's still being restored, Richard. It is. And, we're all getting, and we get to participate in it. Isn't that cool? And um, Godspeed with you, Darren, and um, for what you're doing, your ward and your family and your career and, and just helping everybody feel welcome. And, and thanks, our listeners, for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. <laughs>